Hey, uh, I already told you this earlier this morning, but welcome to you. It's good to uh, dig into God's word uh, together uh, with you. We started a series last work called uh, last work last week called In Christ. We're open up, opening up the book of Ephesians, and I said then, and I'll repeat it now. Three weeks is not enough to get through this whole book, but we're going to blow through. So pay attention closely if you want to catch. All of it, but I want to recap a couple of things we just dove into last week as we read through chapters one, two, and three of Ephesians. The first thing uh, that we kind of chewed on for a moment was everyone belongs. You belong, I belong. If we are in Christ, we belong. Whether you've known Jesus, whether you've uh, received His grace as, as your Savior uh, for five minutes ago or five decades ago, everyone belongs. So that was the first thing. The other thing was I had I told you a story about how I sat at my kitchen table. Uh, a week prior to that, and I just started reading through Ephesians just from the beginning to the end. And here's what I noticed. Here's what I wrote down as I'm just writing notes with, with chapters one, two, and three. And here's the things that it says of our identity if we are in Christ. These are the things that you and I have. Isn't this amazing? I mean, look at that. And this is not some comprehensive list. It's not something official. It's just me with a notepad and a pen of paper, like just sitting in my kitchen table, just writing things down as I'm reading chapters one, two, and three straight through. Now, chapters one, two, and three, that's what they are. There are a list, not a list, it's just, it's talking about your identity, my identity, if we are in Christ. It's about who God is, and because of who God is, what's that mean of you and I? And this is the, some of the things that I took from it. So that's what that is. And now chapters four, five, and six, the rest of the book, which we're not going to get all the way through today, but we are going to start in chapter four, uh, is kind of turning the page on who we are in Christ. Now it talks about what is our conduct? Like, what does this mean of us as Christ followers and how we should treat each other, how we should live in this world and be with one another. So that's where uh, we are going today. And I want to reset kind of the context here. Paul's writing this in 60 AD to the church at Ephesus, where he lived a couple of different times, just for a couple of short little seasons of life, like three years was the longest of them. But he lived there and he was starting these, these, these faith gatherings there, which are now referred to as the church. But don't think of the church like this. These were just people who knew Christ together. They were called the church. So he's writing this letter to them. It, we talked about last week, it might be more appropriately like called a speech than a letter because someone would read this to the gathered body in Ephesus. Someone would stand in front of these people and they would read this letter to them. So they did, you know, all of it, chapters one through six in one reading. I read you all of chapters one, two, and three last week, which was unheard of. We don't do that generally in church. And some of you probably checked out, but we're going to read some more scripture today. Not that much, I promise, but we're going to read some more scripture today because uh, I think the most important thing we can do is just get God's word in us. Like get it in us. Put it in you. Let's chew on this today. So I don't have better things to offer you than the pure, unadulterated like words of God's word of scripture today. So we're going to just do more of that today. We are going to read starting in chapter uh, four uh, today. So if you want to open there, you can. If you want to make notes, you can. Like write in your Bible. Do whatever it is uh, you please. But we are gonna, we're going to read here in just a second. I do want to distinguish one little kind of a different thing than what I set up for you last week. Last week, we talked about um, how Paul was speaking to the Jewish people, which were like God's chosen people. That's all they had ever known for centuries and centuries and centuries, right? It's all they had ever known was that they were the ones chosen by God. And so he referenced this kind of distinction between we have the Jewish Christ followers and we have those who don't have a Jewish um, like heritage. Maybe they're probably more, more Greek or Roman. And he referred to them as the Gentile Christians. Well, today where we're going to go, I want to make sure that we're clear. Like when he distinguishes between Gentiles and like Christians, it's no longer, hey, like these are the Jewish people. These are the Greeks or Romans. Now it's these are the people who know Christ. The Gentiles are the people who have not put their faith in God. Good? 
So as we read, I want to make sure we're clear with that because if we've put our faith in God, we are the ones being held to the standard of all these instructions Paul is giving us. If we've not put our faith in God, I'm glad you're here. It's great to have you today. But I just want to make sure it's clear, like we are the ones, us Christ followers are the ones that Paul is writing to. We are the ones to hold this standard in our lives as he's now about to give us a bunch of really clear instructions on how we are to live. So we are in Christ or we are Gentiles. That's kind of the distinction now today, which is slightly different than where we went last week. Now I'm going to read from good old analog, like Bible. If you want to open up your, app, your Bible app, if you want to get your iPad out, whatever, if you just want to listen to me read, that's great too. But I like reading from this dude every now and then. So I'm going to start in chapter four, verse one, and we're going to get all the way through chapter four and even some of five today. So uh, here's kind of the way I set this up last week. This was read to the church. Now they got to hear six chapters. You're going to get to hear one and a half. And this is not normal. This is not what Pastor Tim, our lead pastor, generally does around here. In fact, I've been here 10 years. I've never heard him do this. So if you're thinking, man, all we do is listen to people read around here. No, not typically and maybe never again, but that's what we're doing for these couple of weeks of this series. So I want you to just consider yourselves part of the church in Ephesus. You are, you are a Christ follower and you're hearing these instructions from Paul who had come and begun this church, begun this like this movement of God in Ephesus a few years earlier. Now he's in house arrest waiting for his trial to begin because they just, you know, he's a He's a no good Christian guy and they were threatened by him. And so he's awaiting that and he's writing to these people and he's, he's very clear to tell them at the end of what we read last week, listen, don't be discouraged for me. I mean, he's writing from jail, well, house arrest, right? He's saying, don't be discouraged for me. The gospel is amazing. And this is gonna, this is the truth you need to hear today. So don't be discouraged for Paul. So if you can like place yourself, like Paul was our leader. Paul was the guy who was sharing all this with us. He's kind of the one who set this in motion in and around the city where we live. And now he's gone, but like he's, he's in jail or, or waiting to maybe he's gonna go to jail. He's saying, don't be discouraged. So you are the church in Ephesus. Someone has been given this letter from Paul to read to you. And that's where we're starting in chapter four, verse one. Here we go. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, being patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except for he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. 
Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles, the non-Jesus followers do. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life God has because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore... Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children." And live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such as a man, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord having nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence, out of reverence for Christ. The word of the Lord. <sighs> 
I need a drink now. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, after signing the Constitution, put his pen down. He walked out the Constitution Hall. He stepped outside, and there was a lady there waiting to speak to him. And she said, Mr. Franklin, ma'am, I understand that you have signed a document on our behalf. What is it that you have given us? And Benjamin Franklin said, ma'am, we've given you a republic. If you can keep it. We've given you a republic if you can keep it. Because I think he understood that everything rises and falls on staying united. See, we talked about this last week. You are one in Christ. You are one individual in the image of Christ. You have been given all these things that we just put on the screen. You are one in Christ. I am one in Christ. But now we're going to turn the page a little bit, take it a step further. We are one in Christ. Are you following we are one. If you're watching online, you're that too. Not because we're gathered in this room, but because if we are Christ followers, we are one in Christ. And Benjamin Franklin wasn't speaking about that. He was speaking on something else. But he understood this concept that everything rises and falls on staying united. So we're going to just start pick up, picking apart some of this, just starting at the beginning of verse of chapter four, and just kind of weaving our way through. We don't have time to get through all of it today. Like I told you last week, I, I bit off way more than I can chew getting through this series in three weeks, but we're just going to chew quickly and just kind of push through, all right? So here we go. Starting in verse one, Paul says, I urge you, therefore, to live a life worthy of the calling you received. What's he talking about? He's saying, everything I just told you that you are and everything that God is in in chapters one, two, and three, hey, all of that is the gospel. Now that you understand who you are in the gospel, this is important that you should now know what that means. What are the implications of that? How now should we live? And you might go, well, I don't know. How do we live? And Paul would say, hey, I got your answer. Here we go. Verse four, he says, by maintaining unity in the spirit of God. Listen, there is nothing I can't think of anything. Maybe you can. There's nothing that demonstrates more like unhealthiness, more ugliness, more immaturity than when when the body of Christ can't get along with the body of Christ. Isn't it terrible? I've been there. If I'm honest, painfully so, I've probably contributed to it at some point, right? We, We are selfish people sometimes. There is nothing uglier than when the body of Christ can't even get along with the body of Christ. Think about your hands for a second. This might be weird, but I'm going to go for it. Think about your hands. You have two hands. Well, most of us have two hands. I don't want to take that for granted. But you have, so you have two hands. This one is fighting with this one. He's scratching. He's clawing. He's, he's tearing it up. And this one is fighting with this one. He's cut a pinky off or whatever, right? Your hands are fighting with one another. Who loses? I lose. Like, this is Jesus. And I want to be careful. I'm not saying Jesus ever loses. We have a victory in Christ. I want to be careful. I don't want to mishear that. But who loses? I lose. This is Jesus when his body can't get along with his body and we're bickering and fighting. Like, the the cause of Christ is what loses, right? So it's kind of like that. And I know that's a bit of a stretch. Then Paul then moves from, like, talking about how do we treat, like, each other in the church to now how should we be engaging the world around us. Well, he's talking to them in 60 AD, but I think the truth is still, still there for us today, right? How do we engage with those around us? And he says, listen, the spirit of God has placed in every member, whether you've known Jesus for five minutes or 50 bazillion years, right? That God did something unique in you, actually at conception. He did something very unique. He gifted you with very specific abilities and passions, and they were meant for you to be used by you. We call these spiritual gifts, and this is not a series on spiritual gifts, although that is a worthy endeavor we should probably dive into at some point. But if you want to read about that stuff, I'm not going to get too lost in the weeds of that today, but you can check, open up 1 Corinthians, and you'll learn all 
all about your spiritual gifts, or at least the spiritual gifts. You want to know what yours are. I think uh, without getting too deep into it, I think what you need to consider for yours is you've been given very specific abilities. You've been given very specific passions. And I think probably if you can think about it like deeply enough, they've probably been affirmed in you at some point, right? Someone has said, wow, that was really great when you, whatever. So there's a list of spiritual gifts. There's, there's different things like, you, like an Enneagram test. You can do the same thing for spiritual gifts. You can kind of find out what your one or your two or three or whatever are. Like what are your highest ones? And that's, that, again, that's a worthy endeavor. We as a church should probably dive into that at some point. But I'm gonna try to stay in Ephesians for the rest of our time together today. But, but here's kind of how I'm gonna paint with broad strokes for the instruction he is giving regarding these gifts that God has given us. You have them and you've been given them on purpose and for a purpose. And you say, well, what is that purpose? Well, I'm gonna tell you, because Paul just told us. Here it is, verse 12. So that the body of Christ may be built up. So that the body of Christ may be built up. What does that mean? I think it means this. You should be busy doing something. You, you, you should be busy doing something for Christ. And listen, this is not me standing up here saying you should be in a serving team at Grace Point. Again, I'm not painting the picture for the church in Ephesus as the church at Grace Point, right? Now, if you want to do that, great. I, I believe in that. I support that. But I'm talking about you should be doing something for the cause of Christ in this world. You should be doing something. As we read last week, like you were God's handiwork created in advance to do these good works. He chose you to do them. He chose you and he made you, created you on purpose for a purpose that we should be serving others and doing these, quote, here's what he says, works of service until we reach unity in the faith and become mature in the knowledge of Christ. I dare say I'll take it a step further. It actually maybe means that we actually can't mature in Christ if we're not doing something to build up the body of Christ with our service. I think that's why Paul has so many instructions for us. He thinks the unity is a big deal, and frankly, so do I. He wants us to mature in our faith, which will lead to unity. And I think it's, it kind of comes down to this. Here's why. Because maturity in Christ for the believer leads to unity in Christ for the body. Maturity in Christ for the believer leads to unity in Christ for the body. In verse 17, Paul tells the Ephesians that the Gentiles, again, those who are not Christ's followers, right, uh, are experiencing a really, really tough time. They have dark and hardened hearts, and they are living a life separate from God. He says, they lost all sensitivity and have indulged in every kind of impurity and are full of greed with a continual lust for more. They're lusting after totally unhealthy things, but Paul's saying, hey, check this out. You Christ followers, you shouldn't do that. You should be different. You should not be doing that. You are in Christ. And you are to live like you are in Christ. So when we do that, you're, you're not only like sinning against God, but you're also tearing and you're splitting this whole thing apart. And Paul's trying to tell you to, like, to keep it all together for the glory of the one who put it all together. My wife and I have a, uh, my wife and I have a dear uh, family member who has struggled for years and years and years with addiction. I mean, he has struggled with, with hard drugs. He struggled with alcoholism. He has struggled and struggled and struggled. And he's dusted himself up, off and got back up on his feet. And then he's, and he's fallen again. And he's dusted himself off and he's got back on his feet and he's fallen again and again. He's been to rehab. So right now, alcohol is a thing that's really just winning. 
if I'm honest. He's been to rehab for it. He's been to jail because of it. He has lost a marriage because of it. He's lost access to his kids because of it. He's been homeless because of it. I mean, he is in a bad, bad way and has spent time in a bad, bad way. And when he got out of rehab this last time, which was a couple of months back, um, things were looking really good. We were really excited, and we were like, all right, he's on a new trajectory. He's got some, he's got some tools in his toolbox now to help him, and he's, he's got some things in place. Now, I've got to be careful. I don't know anything about what it is to be like an alcoholic. I, I, I'm not one. I've not been one. Um, so I didn't have very many tools to offer him except for the hope of Christ, which I know is a pretty big deal. But I didn't know like practical skills, practical things to give him, but we knew somebody who did. So Tara called a friend of ours, and I don't make a habit generally of standing on the stage and calling out people's names to you in our church but I asked him if I could because he's got such a great story. And he said, absolutely, man, I will, I will absolutely just champion this. Yes, you can say whatever you want to say. So Tara called uh, a friend of ours, Ryan Neal. Do you know who that is? He's sitting in this room right now. Um, Ryan and Cindy Neal have uh, been a part of our church for a number of years now. And you might probably better know his wife, who often will stand up here on this team and grace us with her beautiful, powerful singing voice. But Ryan and Cindy Neal have been a part of Grace Point for a number of years. And we called Ryan because Ryan... Uh, after having spent some time with him and like a marriage study we did together and just they're good friends of ours, we knew of his history. Ryan is, I think it's appropriate to call him a recovering alcoholic. Is that a fair statement, Ryan? Recovered. recovered. Let's go with that. So, um, so by the way, that's Ryan. No, I just sold him out. Uh, <laughs> So Ryan has been sober now for over eight years. So the, the duration of the time he's been here at Grace Point, he's been sober. So we don't know Ryan's former life. What we know is the redeemed, restored, recovered Ryan Neal, who serves here and loves here. And like, he's a, he's a great, great, great guy. We know him with the hope of Christ in his life. But, but he knows that life too. He knows the dark side of addiction. He knows the dark side of when it's winning. And so we called him. We said, Ryan, can you help? We don't know what to offer this guy. And he said, are you kidding me? Yes, I would love to help. I want to use this banner for Christ. I want to use my story to leverage for the sake of the gospel to help in any way that I can. So we asked Ryan if he would step in. He said, yep. So we gave this gentleman Ryan's number and he never called Ryan. To our disappointment, right? We were hoping that he would call Ryan. We wanted to see him take every step he could. He said, I just need to do this by myself first. And we went, I think that's a bad idea. And he said, no, but that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do this by myself first. So I said, okay, well, here's the number of a guy who is going to help. He wants to help. He's passionate about this stuff and he understands your battle. okay. Never called. Ryan texted me just this week, and Ryan said, hey, man, I never heard from him. How are things going? And sadly and defeatedly and dejectedly, I said, well, they're pretty terrible. He's relapsed again. I mean, we are so broken over this. We are so sad for this. And Ryan offered me some insight that I wouldn't have known, that I don't know because I, I, I don't live this life. I don't know what this battle is like. But I just want to read you, as if I haven't read enough to you already, I want to read you Ryan's text message uh, back and forth to me this week. Here's what, here's what Ryan said. He said, just know that he is sick and not even a million dollars could separate him from drinking. He has an allergy where his body will crave it and his mind says it's okay to have a drink even when it seems to destroy everything. I've been there. I couldn't go a week without it for over 20 years, and then I couldn't go more than 24 hours towards the end, and eventually I drank around the clock. He doesn't drink because he wants to. When he puts it in his body, he can't stop. Nothing can separate him from that. DUIs, divorce, sad parents. But his problem isn't drinking. His problem is when he's sober, he doesn't have another way of dealing with things. Shame and guilt killed me for years. Love him right through it, and when he says he wants help... Give me a call and I will come day or night. Ryan's a good guy, by the way. And he goes on. 
He said, I'm no better than he is. I'm no holier than he is. The only thing that's different between him and I is that I found a solution. I was desperate for new life. I hated the idea of God. But now he has all the power in my life. Listen, I am not saying, and I don't want you to hear this from me, I I am not saying that if you're a Christ follower, shame on you if you struggle with addiction. It is real. I don't want to marginalize that. I don't want to belittle you for that. Like we have battles we fight. That is not what I'm saying. Don't hear that from me. The other thing I'm not saying, just to be as clear as I can, I'm not saying shame on you if you ever drink alcohol. Okay? That is not where I'm going either. What I am saying is that we develop in us, according to Paul, unhealthy cravings and a lust for unhealthy things apart from Christ. And Paul's saying, where does that come from? He says, well, it's the darkened heart that comes from like this lack of being with God. We are living a life separate from God. And again, how to chew on that based on like, I know God, but I still struggle with this. Listen, I get it. It's more complicated than I'm, than I'm going to make it here. And your, your situation is deeper and more complex than I'm going to make it. And please don't hear me marginalize it. It's real. And we will walk together here in this church. You don't have to come here and pretend you got it all figured out and everything's peachy and perfect because doggone it, it ain't. But Paul says it's from a, from, from a life that's, one translation says, alienated from God. These cravings arise from an absence of God in our lives. See, the Bible teaches us that you and I were created by God and for God. And when we were one with God, that would be like Adam and Eve, you and I being humanity, right? One with God in paradise, we were totally fulfilled. We were totally satisfied. But once that was broken because of sin, we're no longer satisfied. There's, there's, this, there's this emptiness, there's this craving in us, and this, this satisfying, fulfilling relationship was now broken. Blaise Pascal, Pascal excuse me, famously called it the God-shaped hole that exists in every human heart. The God-shaped hole that exists in every human heart. We have this void in our hearts, and this is, this is fascinating to me. I'll come back to this in just a second. When I was in third grade, I went to summer camp in good old Junction City, Kansas, with my church. I'm a third grader. And I don't remember much about camp. I don't remember much about what the speaker said. I remember a few things. Mostly what I remember is the prank wars and the pillow fights. And I remember like my counselor was amazing because he said, hey, go destroy those guys' cabin while they're at chapel. My counselor was my father, just for the record. He said, just get them. So we did, man. We destroyed them. We teepeed them. We, we, we did all kinds of horrible things to their cabin. My buddy Craig took a bottle of shampoo and on their concrete floor in the middle of their, their shack there, he wrote the word, Dork. D-O-R-C-K. Dork. I've never forgiven Craig for that. Those of you that don't think that's funny, there's no C in the word dork, just for the record. I don't remember much about camp, but what I do remember is that the speaker's name was Howie, and I remember the way he made me feel. I remember that when he opened the word of God, I remember how it made me feel. I don't remember what he said. But I remember how it made me feel. And at the end of, uh, at the end of camp, the last night of chapel, uh, he said, hey, does anybody want to come up on stage and hold the mic and tell, tell everybody here what the Lord has done in your heart this week? And I said, yeah, no, thanks. I'm good. So then I walked up on stage, right? And I did it. I don't know why I did it. But like I said, I don't want to do it, but I'm getting out of my seat. I walk up on stage and I get in line. And at some point, it's my turn. Guess what I say? 
I feel like the Lord filled a hole in my heart I didn't know was, not, was there. These are words I said as a third grader. Like, I feel like God filled a hole in my heart I didn't know I had. So I'm a believer in this Blaise Pascal thing that says, hey, we all have this God-shaped void in our hearts that can only be filled with God. Listen, I crave a lot of things. I crave sweet tea. I crave Twix. Like, I crave a lot of things. And like, we all crave a lot of things. I'm not saying everything is an unhealthy craving, though those are, I can admit it. But like, but there are some things that we crave. There are some things that we lust for, as the Bible says, that can only be filled by God. It doesn't mean everything that you like in life is bad. It just means there is this one space in your heart, there's overarching thing that is just for God, that like whatever you crave after, it can't be filled with anything else besides God. And Paul like says, well, I have a solution for that. I can, I can help you with that. Here's, he says that the solution, here it is in verse 23, is a totally renewed spirit or attitude of our minds. He says, we need a whole new self. And if we need a whole new self, it's a whole new spirit. It's a whole new heart. Like we need a heart transplant. We need this, this thing that happens at our very, very, very core. We need to become a new person. I love this. He talks about how it happens a couple of verses earlier. This is, this is the English standard version of this verse, but I love it. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He tells us how to have this heart transformation. He says, it's all about Jesus. Now, scholars... Uh, will suggest that when Paul uses the word Christ or Jesus Christ, he's referring to like the deity of Christ as God. Follow? But when he uses just the word Jesus, now the, 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 the line of distinction is that when he uses just the word Jesus, he's actually now talking about the person, the Nazarene, the Jesus of Nazarene that was born in this world, that did miracles, that died on the cross, the person of Jesus. So this is interesting to me. So Paul says... Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught on him as a truth is in Jesus. He says, listen to this. The person who physically walked on this, on this earth, who worked miracles and died on the cross, don't miss it, was saying, you have a transformed heart by hearing the story of this historical person of Jesus, his life and death. Because in the story of Jesus, we see the beauty of God. And the beauty of God can change us. Our hearts are changed when we, in his words, put off our old selves. We see God through the story and the person of Jesus, and it changes us. And I'm not talking like simple, like behavior modification. We've all tried that. Our family member tried that. I'm not talking behavior modification. I'm talking about a new self, a heart transformation, a soul transformation at its core. When you need a new heart, when you need a renewed mind, a new self, it starts with the person of Christ. So the biblical definition of life transformation, I've decided, and I'm not right, I get this, it's not anything official, right? This, this is my thoughts, can maybe be said like this. It's when the spirit of God uses the story of God, that would be Jesus on this earth, the, the person of God here, right? To make the beauty of God come alive in our hearts. When the Spirit of God uses the story of God to make the beauty of God come alive in our hearts. And isn't that kind of the big idea of Ephesians? I mean, it's why all these instructions come in chapter four, not chapters one, two, or three, because he needed to establish something. And so we had to saturate ourselves in the gospel for three full chapters. And only after we've done that and the spirit of God has renewed our hearts and our minds and ourselves can we actually change. It's by receiving the gospel in us that we can actually live according to all these standards, which he's got a lot for us. 
Only then can we do what he's about to tell us to do. Here they all, here's, here's a list of them. Don't sin in your anger. Notice he doesn't say don't sin. Don't sin in your anger. I've, I just screwed that up. Notice he doesn't say don't be angry. You can be angry. God gave us that. We have emotions. He says, don't sin in your anger. Stop stealing, but work instead. Speak well of each other and build each other up. Don't be bitter or malicious. And for the love of God who forgave you, forgive one another. He goes on, stop being greedy and start being thankful. Walk in love and don't be deceitful. Man, my goodness, it sure sounds like he's asking a lot of us. And I think he is. You know why? Because unity counts. Because unity in the body of Christ matters. I think it's everything. You can get this right. I know it sounds like a lot, but you can get this right because you have the power of Christ in you. But if you're living in darkness and you're separated from God, you got no shot at holiness or wholeness. You aren't blessed or chosen or adopted. You aren't confident to freely approach God. You aren't redeemed, forgiven, included, saved, or brought near. And perhaps the biggest travesty of all, Paul says, and Ryan said to me last week too, is you don't even know it. Because you're living a life separate and alienated from God. You don't even know it. It's the old adage, you don't know what you don't know. And that's why, Christian, that's why your witness and your testimony as the church matters so darn much. Because they don't know. That's why it matters. And I love how clear Paul like, continues this. He, he doesn't mince his words at all. Here's, here's chapter five, verse 15 and 16. Be very careful then how you live, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Most religions aren't like Christianity, are they? In fact, none of them are. It's pretty unique. It's the only religion that says you are saved by grace through faith, and that's how you change. Every other religion says if you change, if you do good, if you act right, if you be kind, if you do blah, 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 blah fill in the blank, then you can have salvation. Christianity flips the script and says, nope, you come to Jesus just as you are, and he will change you from the inside out. This is this heart transforming thing that happens inside of us, and it happens only by the grace of God. And he goes on to say in the same passage, I know that you have been extended grace. I get it. I'm glad for it. Let's celebrate it. But don't be foolish. Be filled with the Spirit and speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you ever wonder why we sing together when we gather? You ever think about that? I do. I think about it every week. Why do we sing together when we gather as the body of Christ? And I have, a, I have a kind of a basic answer for you. Here it is. Here, there's two things. To declare the glory and the goodness of God. I'll add the word together, I think is a good word. Number two, to unify the body by reminding ourselves and each other of both who we are and whose we are. Because unity in the body of Christ is everything. If you need a clear answer than that, I got one more for you. This is pretty rudimentary because the Bible says to do it. 
Because the word of God, which is our truth, the, 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 the truth of God's word says we should sing together when we do it. Paul just got done telling us, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the spirit, always giving thanks to God. We should do this stuff together because there's something unifying that happens in the body of Christ, through the body of Christ, because of Christ. There's something unifying that happens in us when we declare the goodness of God together as his bride. I believe it to be true. It's why I have the job that I have. And I think we should close the day with that in mind. Will you stand with me? There's nothing cute about this. There's no band behind me. There's no lights being dimmed. We are going to do what Paul just said to do. We are going to sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. So let's be the church and sing together as we are intended to. Oh, to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all, all to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow, don't miss this one, worldly pleasures all forsaken, Take me, Jesus, take me now. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. God, it is good to be your church. It is good today to declare the goodness and the glory of God together because we are in Christ. I am in Christ as an individual. Thank you, Lord, that you've called me to you. And we are your body in Christ as your church. Father, unify us through the, through the bond of peace in your Holy Spirit today. And we will give you glory. We love you and we praise you. And it's in the mighty name of your son, Jesus, who binds us all together that we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. We'll see you next week.